Hey listeners, Isaac Butler here. Just one quick piece of business. Wanted to let you know that the interview for this episode was actually recorded a few months ago prior to the strike. Uh, we didn't want you to think we were crossing picket lines here on Working. All right, enjoy the episode. One of the most bitter lessons I've learned is when you sit between the writer and the director and the writer's telling you that the director doesn't understand them and the director's telling you that the writer doesn't know what they're doing. At a certain point, the best management of that particular conflict is to let them go at each other. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, it is so nice to see you again. But tell me, whose voice did we hear at the top of the show? Well, I spoke with producer Marion McGowan, who is probably best known stateside for executive producing Hulu's The Great. Oh, and this may be a bit of a silly question, but why did you want to speak with her? Well, honestly, because The Great, you know, for the three seasons that it was on, which just finished up recently, I kind of think The Great was the best show on television. Wow. I mean, it combined the political comedy of George Bernard Shaw with really delightful perversity. <laughs> you I, fucking killed Tarzinski, didn't you? I did. And felt bad about it. This random violence is not the way of my court. He called me dickhead. That is your answer. I killed a man because he called me dickhead. Do you hear how that sounds? Sounds perfectly logical. It was just really smart and funny, and I loved it. So I wanted to know more about it, and I also really wanted to learn more about the very mysterious job that we call the producer. Yeah, no kidding. So yeah, it did just get canceled. Did the show get to have a real ending? It did. It seems very clear to me that they knew there was a good chance that the show would end at, at season three. Uh, a lot of shows end at season three mm, these days, mm, in part mm. because everyone gets more money after season three. Mm -hmm. uh, and so often shows are conceived as having a, a three season arc. And so they really gave the show a real ending. The three seasons are a clear beginning, middle, and end of a mm. story. I think there's more to do with the characters in the world. They could have kept it going, but it's a very satisfying uh, three-season arc. Well, I cannot wait to hear your conversation with Marion McGowan, but something tells me that you have a little something extra that's just for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? You know, June, your clairvoyance every time surprises me because, yes, indeed, uh, Marion and I talked about the design process of the show and how you figure out the look of something like The Great. You know, it's set in the 18th century in Russia at the mm -hmm. royal court, but at the same time, they have a budget. You know, the show is stylistically very peculiar. The, the showrunner and creator is the guy who wrote The Favorite. You know, it's in a contemporary idiom, even though it's wow. set in a period. You know, there's a lot of different questions questions you have to kind of answer to figure out what you want the show to look like. Oh, amazing. What a treat. If you're a member of Slate Plus, you will hear that at the end of the episode. If you aren't, let me tell you, it's super easy to join as a Slate Plus member. You get to hear extra segments on this show and others like The Waves and Culture Gabfest. You get bonus episodes of podcasts like Big Mood, Little Mood and Decodering. And of course, you will never hit a paywall on Slate.com. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Marion McGowan.
Mary McGowan, thank you so much for joining us this week on Working to talk about your process. My pleasure. Let's start at just like a really basic question that I think a lot of our listeners have, which is, what is a producer actually? What does a producer actually do? What is that job? We we see so many people with those credits, but I feel like it's very mysterious. It is. It has many and multiple uh, manifestations, if the truth be known, because there are, of course, producers who do nothing but sort of sit there in the credits. And then there are other producers who are skilled in logistics and there are producers who are skilled in the creative side. So it really depends. Um, I come out of the independent creative producer world. So um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm Australian. And in Australia, it's uh, the producers are very much uh, jack-of-all-trades. So in my case, what I do is I often come up with the idea or I source an idea. I mean, I read a book or I see a play or I read an article or have an idea, you know, see something in a newspaper or something and I will bring on a writer and we'll develop it into an idea and then I'll go and finance it and then we go and make it and then we go and put it out there into the world. Got it, got it. And can, can I just ask for our listeners' benefit, some of those folks who don't do anything but they have their name on it as a producer, <laughs> how does that actually happen? What is the thing that's getting them that? I mean, sometimes I know it's the like actors or writers are contractually gain that credit as they go along and things like that, but they are still working on the show. What? What? How does one's name end up on a show in which they've done no work as a producer? Well, you see, they would argue that they have done critical work such as bring a portion of the money or uh, okay. affected an introduction. I do remember years and years ago, uh, an English producer was working in a lot of studio pictures, was described to me the 13 producers that had been involved in a film that she was making. She was the only one actually on set, but she then mm. described that so-and-so had introduced them to so-and-so who'd bought on the director, who'd introduced them to so-and-so who'd then this, who'd bought this pocket of money and that. So often it's to do with what they've bought to enable the film or the TV show to get made. I read somewhere in another interview you gave that there was a, a moment in your career where you had a kind of larger office with junior producers, a lot of assistants, and then at some point you decided to kind of shrink down to just you and I think one other person, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Can you talk about why you decided to do that or you know what, what the difference is in those kinds of size of, of operations? Sure. I think that there are very much producers who are entrepreneurs in a business sense as well. So what they're looking mm. to do is to build a company that can survive them, so to speak. So that what you'll be doing in that situation is you are you are making productions that that will enable you to grow a library that then becomes something that you can on sell. So that yeah. what often happens for instance in television is that you get producers who grow themselves to a certain size, a certain number of productions, and then they'll get bought by a bigger entity such as NBC Universal or Sony or ITV Studios or one of these bigger entities because what they are is they're generating enough product that makes sense for that company, that studio to buy them. I realised at a certain point that that was not me that what I liked mm. to do was the one-on-one -on -one relationship with writers and directors, coming up with ideas that what I'd ended up doing at a certain point as the company got bigger and bigger was I was working to keep the company going rather than doing the things that I actually loved. And I that was a personal choice that I just decided I'm right. not that person. I'm not the person who's going to build Seesaw. I'm not the person who's going to build 
you know, a company in Australia called Matchbox and things like that. So that just wasn't ever going to be me. And I think that's that's the decision I made at that point. And I like the independence of it, the liberation of it. I can hook up with people. I can do things on my own. I can go work for somebody else. It, it just enables me to pursue the ideas that I'm interested in. Got it. Got it. Well, I thought maybe as a way of kind of illustrating your creative process and what you do, we could talk specifically about The Great, you know, which um, I, I think by the time this episode is aired, it's uh, third season will have been out for a little bit. And, you know, I'm a huge huge fan of the show. So uh, uh, that's the other reason I want to talk about it. Um, it was originally a stage play that you saw, I want to say it's Sydney Theater Company, that's right? Correct. And that's then correct. I believe I, I heard that you initially wanted to option it for a film and then came to the conclusion that TV would be the better fit. What, what caused you to kind of change your mind about that? Have you ever tried to finance a feature film? <laughs> no, no, I have not. <laughs> Let me just rest my case there. <laughs> yeah. Independent films, what can I say? Um, the, yes, originally we did. So originally I optioned it because it's a fantastic role. It was actually a fantastic role for an older actor, in a sense, was where we started because the original play was bifurcated. So one part of it was the young Catherine and then, a, then there was an intermission and there was a 20-year gap and then, then the second part was the older Catherine dealing with the repercussions of the decisions that she'd made in the first part of her life, which you can sort of see. And sort of season one is essentially the first part of that play. And we developed it for quite a long time and we sort of attached great cast to it and then it would fall over and then we'd attach new cast and then it would fall over. And it was, it was tricky to do and partly it was tricky because it was bifurcated and people were concerned about how you... Segway. It's always tricky to go from one set of actors to another set of actors and mm -hmm. ask an audience to, to move, to emotionally stay with you. The other aspect of it was that tonally no one had seen a film written by Tony McNamara at that point. Yeah, Tony McNamara, of course, uh, later became known as the writer of The Favourite, for which he was nominated for an Oscar. And that actually all came out and happened prior to the great making landfall in the U.S. on TV. Correct, correct. So you started working on it before when he was a relatively unknown playwright. And then by the time it got on TV, he was an Oscar-nominated uh, screenwriter. It, which seemed to have helped us, I think. The, the passage to going from a film to a television series was... Partly to do with the fact that Tony had spent a lot of time working in television in Australia. It just seemed to, I don't know really why it didn't occur to us, but we had attached Nick Holt to play the part of Peter in a play, in a film version of the, of the script. And we were talking to Elle Fanning about playing the role of Catherine. And my recollection was that it was Elle's people who suggested that had we thought about doing it as television. And it was sort mm. of one of those... The, of course, moments, because it allowed us to solve all the kind of narrative dilemmas that were concerning people about the way the script was structured. And it just suddenly made sense. So that's how it happened, basically. But it also means on a creative level, like really breaking the, the existing structure, the existing thing you're working on, because the film has a certain relationship to the play if it's keeping that structure. And instead it's like, nope, we're breaking this thing. Uh, and then sort of reconfiguring it in this vastly expanded form. Can you talk a little bit about the the process of doing that, which I imagine was must have been at least a little bit of a struggle to figure out how to do that? <laughs> well, actually, when we pitched it, we pitched it as six seasons. 
Um, and we sort of stole a little bit of an idea from The Crown in as much as we originally conceived it of as sort of two seasons as sort of the young Catherine, two seasons as a, a sort of middle-aged Catherine and three, two seasons as an old Catherine. That obviously is not where we ended up, but it gave us a basic structure that enabled us, in a sense, to pay homage to the original play as well because we would get mm-hmm. to to depict a character who was coming to terms with the life and the decisions that she'd made, which was one of the big themes of the of the original play. So when we started to do it as a as a ten, the first season was ten one hours. So in a sense, we took the first part of the play and expanded it, essentially by allowing us to introduce all the other characters who were much less sort of present in the play and much less present in the screenplay as well. So it was it was very much we expect to get from her arrival in Russia to her decision to take power in one season. So that was really where we got to. So that was that was a lot more than had ever occurred in any play or any screenplay either. Right. Right. And so can you talk a little bit, because obviously as a creative producer, you know, part of what you're doing during this development process is giving a lot of notes, right? Do you have a philosophy of giving notes? Do you have a way that you want to go about it or a way you structure giving feedback? Yes, I do. I always praise. You must always start with the positives. Then I think it's important to make sure that you make it clear to the writer that you understand what they're trying to do or what the purpose of the of the draft or the episode or the screenplay is. Because then I think it's it that allows you to develop a level of trust between yourself and the writer because then you, at least you know that you're, you know, and if they counter and say, well, no, no, it's not what I was trying to do, what I was trying to do with this, and you go, oh, I see, okay, that was interesting because what's coming across is this. So mm-hmm. I think it's that they're the sort of two sort of rules of thumb that I have when I approach notes. I do really try to do them verbally and really try to do them face-to-face. Then they can always be followed up with written written notes in case people can't remember what was said or, you know, it helps you to flesh it out. But I really do try to do it face-to-face mm. as much as possible. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that Nick Holt had been attached to the film version. You were talking to Elle Fanning's people and stuff. You know, looking at your past record and career, I've noticed you have like a you have a real eye for acting talent. You helped discover (laughs) Rose Byrne and Heath Ledger, Mm -hmm. for example. And, and I would say that, you know, I don't think the roles that, uh, Holt or Fanning play on the great are particularly what audiences would expect from them. And then there's a lot of particularly English actors who I think are essentially unknown in the United States. How do you go about casting? How do you go about finding the right person? And, and, uh, you know, clearly there's a part of you that likes to do the unexpected or, or pick an actor that we don't know that well, you know, how do you think about casting? I think casting is the second most difficult thing about making anything. It's really is the, is the first raising the money. First is getting the script right. The second is getting the casting. Oh no, the financing is just, it stands alone in its own particular place. Um, it's incredibly difficult because you have to, you have to be as objective as you can whilst being as emotionally open as you can. You sort of have to... It's like the, the worst job in the world is you're casting a beautiful woman or a handsome man because everybody's idea of beauty is completely different. And if you're sitting in a room with that sort of dilemma, it's a, just a nightmare because it's very difficult to separate that out from your own subjectivity. But it is... It's very much about... The team has to be extremely clear about who this character is 
and what the interpretation of that character is. And then you get to watch, particularly in the case of The Great, we got to watch these brilliant actors bring those various characters to life in various ways. And then you have to decide, is it that character that we need to go forward with? Is it that interpretation of the character to go forward or that one? And often you end up with a situation where there are two perfectly brilliant choices and you just have to make one or the other. We certainly had that situation with Archie and with Velimentov and with uh, Grigal and with um, Leo, the sort of love interest in the first season. But it was, so it's, then it just becomes, you don't really know. You just have to make a choice between one or the other because they're both, but they are, you sort of then just have to trust your instincts. But it is very, it's very, it is that question of separating your sort of subjectivity from your emotions, which is just a tricky, it can be a tricky thing. That, yes, that's a tricky thing in any field, <laughs> yes, I feel exactly. like, you know, exactly. that, that you need your emotions there, but you can't obey them. No, exactly. Completely. Yeah, I think he's incredibly hot, but we're not going to cast him. Yes, exactly. We'll be back with more of Isis Conversation with Marion McGowan. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we answer listener questions. So please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you. Drop us a line at working at slate.com. You can also send a voice memo to that address or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Marion McGowan. Since we mentioned it before, like obviously part of your job is getting the money together to even do the thing. The Great is sort of a period piece. I know that there's some some ambiguities about that term uh, uh, on your team, but in that it is uh, character speaking in a very contemporary way. And it's about very contemporary ideas, but it is set in the 18th century. It's set in a world of incredible finery. There's, you know, uh, lots and lots and lots of, of stuff that has to go on that I imagine costs a certain amount of money. So how did you figure out the financing piece for the show? What What is that process like? This was a novel experience for me because I've never done television before and I'd never done mm. US studio right. broadcaster-based television either. So I approached it in one way. Um, my co-executive producers approached it in a different way. So I, what I would normally have done in that situation, I would have taken the North American uh, license and then I would have found a sales agent and I would have sort of stitched together the rest of the uh, of the funds that way. That's not you how... Mean, you mean by selling it in other markets? Yeah, but in fact... Selling the foreign rights in other markets to get the chunk of money you need, yeah. We would own the show. So that right. Hulu would have it or whichever the, the US broadcasters would have it for North America and we would have the rest of the world and we would fund... The, the missing bit between the licence fee and the cost of making the show um, from other territories. So you would put together a sale out of Australia and a sale out of the US, of the UK, a sale out of Germany, something like that. It would probably have been enough to cover the shortfall. 
Mm-hmm. But that was not how the executive producers in that my co-executive producers were accustomed to doing it. So we did it the classic sort of Hollywood way, which means that you attach to a studio, which in our case was Media Rights Capital, and then they license it. We give them the rights and then they license it to Hulu and then we they take the rest of the world. And then they provide you with the money. Correct. Correct. Yeah, got it. Yeah. And we work for them. Right. Since you're used to owning it, was that uh you know that 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 seems like it would be a difficult thing to let go of if you're used to owning the work. It was galling. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But it was interesting to me as well. I mean, I, I, it was such a new world to me. It was difficult for me to... I mean, I, the other issue you would have had in that situation would be whether Hulu would be comfortable without a studio in that middle position anyway. Right. Because there is... You need fairly deep pockets if something goes wrong and there's all sorts of other things that would play into that. But that's how we would put it together if we were in Australia or the UK, for instance. So once you're actually on set, you're in production, right? Mm-hmm. You're you're actually on set. Not every producer does that, but you know you're you're on set. What what is your day to day job like at that point? What are you actually doing? You know, day to day when you're on set. Yeah, I don't spend all day on set. We have this wonderful thing called a Q take, which is sort of like an iPad, and it just takes the feed off the video link from the camera, so I can sit in my office. And oh, that's amazing. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So I can sit there with the Q take there, and I can watch everything that's on set. And then if I see something that worries me or troubles me or I think or gives me an idea, I'll either sort of text the writer on set or I'll just go running down and just say, look, let's try this or have you thought about this, something like that. Um, and also because it's 10 hours and we're it's such a sort of tight, you know, high-pressure pre-production process, I'm usually a block ahead a bit. So... I'm reading the scripts for the next bit. I'm looking at the casting for the next bit. I'm looking at the designs for the costumes. I'm thinking about where we're going to shoot it. I'm talking to the directors. So that's often what the day-to-day process is like. So how long do you have to film each episode? We have 23 days, 23, 24 days for a block. And those that's two episodes. So we get between 12 and 13 days per episode, something like that. And then you're just on to the next one? Yeah. Basically? Wow. Well, we actually, this season, last season, we factored in a three-day interstitial so that we had, everyone could just take a breath. But of course, needless to say, that often got absorbed by, you know, COVID problems and we lost a right. day or an actor was sick and whatever. Right. So that's most of a year. Most of a yeah, year that most you're, of when you're year. filming it. Yeah. So... You know, with The Great, it was an existing play. That's not obviously where all of your ideas originate from. You know, what what do you, when you're in the mode of, okay, time to find a project or think up the next one or whatever, what what is that process like? What is that time like for you? I tend not to do it that consciously. Uh, I tend to come across an idea and I come across an idea and I go, this is, this I think has something. But, you know, my, I always think that Film and television development is like the pharmaceutical business <laughs> in as much as we spend a lot of time and money developing ideas that don't go anywhere. And then mm-hmm. there's one or two that do, and then they become the Viagra or the, you know, the Xanax or whatever it might be that sort of pays for everything else. 
So, what, yeah, I come across an idea and then I just I start to develop it and I'll, I'll pay a writer to do something small on it or I'll do a kind of one-pager or something like that. And then we, I sort of go from there and see if I can get somebody's interest in it. Right. So you're moving lots of things forward a little bit at the time and then sometimes they don't work out or most That's of the time right. they don't work out. That's the big thing. I did a, a contract at the National Film School in Australia and what's one of the things I always used to try and teach the producing students was the hardest thing to do is to stop developing an idea that you love because it's not the right idea or it's not working or it's the wrong time or... You can't get money to do it can't get money to do it or even if you can get money to do it you just can't crack it it's just that's the it's the hardest thing in the world but it's you know it's every now and then I sort of go through some old folders on my computer and I find a project that I developed 10 years ago and I think oh I wonder whether I should revitalize that one Mm. (laughs) maybe it's time how did you learn how to let go of the ideas that aren't working out well I've got quite an interesting story about this I was talking to this young producer, quite, I mean, experienced, but sort of not younger than me, less experienced than I am. And I was talking to him about this sort of weird little project that I'd been developing and I'd spent some money on it and we'd travelled to try and get it and I'd worked on it. I'd raised some money to get the scripts written and I was talking to him about it and he said, I said, what do you think about that? What do you think about this project? He said, see, the thing is, Marion, you're seeing the best possible version of this with the best possible director and you don't have that. And I thought, that's smart. That's now the rule that I apply to, to these projects now is, is this the, am I seeing the best possible version of this and is it the best possible team to be doing it with? Or am I imagining this beautiful thing but I'm not working with the right people that are going to realise it? So it was a good way of, of thinking about all the projects that I was working on. Wow. It was a tough moment, I can tell you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's never fun to hear that, right? It's never no, fun it's to hear, not. like, this is this is a fundamentally flawed project, and <laughs> yes. uh, it probably won't work. It probably um, won't no work. No one likes hearing that. No um, one likes hearing that. It's true. And obviously, you know, in the environment of making TV or a film, you have to manage and participate in, I would imagine, quite a bit of conflict, right? Any collaborative <laughs> relationship. Collaborative relationships have a lot of conflict. I imagine sometimes as the producer, you're actually the one trying to fix the conflict. Sometimes you're part of the conflict. It can't be avoided. Conflict and collaboration, they go together hand in hand. How do you have conflict effectively? I think there are a couple of answers to that. Um, One of the most bitter lessons I've learned is that is when you sit between the writer and the director. And the writer's telling you that the director doesn't understand them and the director's telling you that the writer doesn't know what they're doing or whatever the dilemma might be between those two individuals. And you're As a middle child, between- you're, describing, you're describing my uh, yeah, uh, me too. nightmare right here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> me too, me too, middle child. Um, so my instinct, probably because I'm a middle child, was always, to, oh, explain the director to the writer, explain the writer to the director, sort of constantly, you know, uh, appeasement, appeasement, appeasement. And... I think one of the bitter lessons I learned was at a certain point, the best management of that particular conflict is to let them go at each other. Because if they come out of it and sort it out, then it's going to work. If they don't, then it's never going to work. And you're just going to, you're making a a lifelong headache for yourself as far as the the strength of that project's concerned. So that's something I've learned over the years is it's better at a certain point just to let them 
at it, so to speak. The other thing is I'm an extremely calm person. The more heated and dramatic a situation gets, the calmer I get, which means that it's I can then exercise the second most useful skill, which is the ability to listen. Why are they upset? Why are they upset? What's actually going on here? Not what they're saying, but what what's really behind what they're saying. So that's sort of the opposite of what I've just said. This is when you are trying to bring people together or to try and resolve a specific dilemma in, in a specific set of circumstances. But even in that situation, at a certain point, you have to go, this is never going to work. Right. They're, not interested, they're not interested in resolution. They're interested in conflict. And if that's all they want, then you're better off to let one or other party walk or, right, right, or right. for you to get rid of one or other party. But, now, do you yes. ever have the thing, because I've had this sometimes, where, you know, people find your calm provocative? Because they're like, <laughs> why aren't you getting upset about this? This is a crisis. Why are you so calm? You know, has that been a thing that you've had to uh, confront and be like, you know, it doesn't do anyone any good for me to get upset about it. My job is to stay calm or, you know, whatever it is. Exactly. Um, not so much in that, not in a sort of provocative way, but more in a, why aren't you more upset? I'm, you know, can't you... I can't believe you're not more upset. And you go, well, what's the point? I mean, it's going to the more upset. You just just have to deal with it. You just have to deal with right. it. Right. You know. Right. Right. You're trying not to throw fuel on the on the fire. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Because you know, the more heated I get, all you're doing is adding energy to a fire. And what's there's no point. Nothing right. to be gained from it. You know, you just mentioned earlier. Sometimes you got to let someone walk, which brings me to like I, I imagine the least fun part of your job, which is sometimes you got to fire people. Sometimes you got to tell people this project isn't working out. We can't move forward with it. Sometimes you've got to be like, "All right, if it, if you're giving me this ultimatum, then goodbye." You know, um, was that something you you know as a as a calm person who wants people to get along? <laughs> is that something you had to work to kind of learn how to do and become comfortable doing? Yes, no one likes to fire people. You know, we all like to hear yes, we don't like to hear no. Um, at the end of the day, though, there's two aspects to that. You've, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. If you've decided you've got to do it, then you've got to do it. And you just have to do it as kindly as you can. Um, they're, they're unlikely ever to forgive you, but that's just the way it is. Um, the, the other thing I learned rather after a rather uh, difficult experience in letting somebody significant go on a production. You know, when we're, we were about to get financed and we had to let this sort of, this person go. And I spent the first half of the conversation explaining to them why, what was going wrong, what was what had happened and why we weren't be able, going to be able to finance it with them and how we needed to do, you know, this is why it was wrong and how much I'd tried to do it and how much I've done this and how much I've done that. And then I told them that we were letting them go. And I realised it's like when you break up with your boyfriend, you have to tell the boyfriend that you're breaking up with them and then tell them why. Don't tell mm. them why and break up with them because they think, therefore, it's a conversation about how they can make it work. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no. And I, because in this particular instance, I went through this heartbreaking thing where I explained what, why it hadn't worked and what wasn't working and why the financiers were saying this and why blah, blah, blah. And then I said, so this means I have to let you go. And I was so relieved that I'd done it and I walked away and I rang their agent and I said, like, I've done it. I've explained it to them, blah, blah, blah. And then the next morning I got a text from them saying, so I thought about what you said and I've worked out if we could do this, that and the other, 
they just hadn't registered that it was over because the way I right. presented it was a, a problem that needed to be solved. I just whereas whereas when you say like look I'm sorry this is what uh, you know and if you want to know why then the explanation correct, correct. they well they might not accept it but, emotionally no. but they but cognitively they at least accept that they, it actually is over correct yes so I right. thought you've got to, have to learn that break up with the boyfriend first and then tell them why <laughs> in love <laughs> and in life exactly good 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 uh, good advice bitter experience um, good advice. You know, doing the great, you know, we were just talking about the shooting schedule. That's a, that's a really long time <laughs> to be working on that. It was. And you've got the other projects going on and stuff. And, you know, you're talking about taking phone calls at the beginning of the day, ta- answering emails at the end of the night. How do you take care of yourself? I, um, I exercise a lot. I, I think that's the thing I make sure I do. I try not to drink as much as I can sort of during the shoot particularly during the shoot, because uh, I remember years and years ago I was doing this film and I got home from work at 7 o'clock. My husband had the dinner on the table by 8 o'clock and I was on my third glass of wine. And I realised I literally was just drinking it like water. And I thought, well, I might as well just drink water. So I stopped. Yeah. <laughs> I stopped drinking, drinking that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because I have recently, you know, found myself and many people I talk to cutting back on on alcohol, particularly actually when stressed, because you think, like, yeah. oh, that's when you need the glass or two of wine. But actually, it makes the next day might help you let go of the day you've just had, but it makes the next day much harder. And it also affects your sleep. You know, that's the, that's right. the other thing. The other thing, so I think it's exercise is the most important thing. I also sort of try not to work, not, try not to do too much on the weekends. So I try to have other other things. So, you know, I try to have a, a nap in the afternoons on the weekends and things like that. I try to, you know, try to eat well and not drink too much and do a lot of exercise. Are you a runner? What, what, do you, what, do you, what, what is the best exercise for you for uh, relieving stress and stuff? I'm like a, I do a lot of weights. I do a lot of weights. Oh, yeah, because, amazing. yeah, do a lot of weights. But I do run. I try to run. I've been, I'm the world's worst runner. I mean, really, really bad, bad at it. But I do I hate it. running. <laughs> I hate running. I mean, I I'm completely agree with you. But I have this app that says, you know, walk for five minutes, run for one minute, walk for a minute, run for two minutes. I do that. So literally, I, I uh, never run more than two minutes. So what are you working on now? Where where are you in your creative process, you know, today? We're just hoping to close the finance on a in an independent Australian film which is uh, written and directed by a man called Charles Williams who won the Palm d'Or for his short film a couple of years ago at Cannes. So we hope to shoot that towards the end of this year. We just have a bit more money to put in place for that. I'm also developing a couple of television shows which would shoot partly in Australia and partly in Europe. Um, and Tony and I are doing are talking about another, we've got another project on the table that we're going to do, which does not involve a corset and does not involve a wig. <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever put on the wig, just to, to, the wigs, just to... Uh... I've done three cameos. Oh, what episodes are you in for, our, for our, uh, the great super fans out there? Which, what are your cameos? I'm in episode one of season one. I think it's episode two of season two. And I think it's episode three of season three, something like that. Amazing. Well, Marion, thank you so much for joining us uh, this week to talk to us about your process. My pleasure. Nice to speak. Up next... Isaac and I will talk about the correct ratio of 
praise to criticism when offering feedback on a creative project. Isaac, that was incredible. Thank you. If I were going to try to be a mini Marion McGowan and I was looking for a great idea to develop, I would just try to set up a podcast that is her talking and offering sage advice on producing for film and television. What a superstar. Oh, I don't know about you, Isaac, but there are certain topics on which I am constantly changing my mind. And Marion raised one of them. It is whether you should always offer praise when giving critical feedback. Marion's point of view was that you need to make it clear to the person you're talking to that you understand what they're trying to do. That is really persuasive. It really does build trust and you need to do that. The other take, which I have also held at some other times, is that people are prepared for what is sometimes known as the feedback shit sandwich. That is where you start with praise and you end with praise and you put the could do better stuff in the middle When people grow accustomed to feedback that is structured that way, they tend to learn to just ignore the praise, believing it to be the spoonful of sugar that helps the criticism go down. I am curious, where do you stand on this important question? I think, honestly, that when you're treating the positive feedback as the spoonful of sugar, whether you're the person doing the criticizing or the person being criticized, you're kind of shortchanging the value of positive feedback. Mm-hmm. Positive feedback, you know, is a form of critique. You can learn a lot by being told what is working. And if you're the person doing the feedback, you need to make positive feedback as specific and helpful as the negative feedback. And actually it helps support the kind of negative criticisms because you can draw contrasts between what's working and what's not. Uh, I think it doesn't work when you're like, this is really great. Lots of criticism. Anyway, I can tell you worked hard on it. Well done. Yeah. Like that's the shit <laughs> yeah. sandwich. That's yes. BS. You yes. you actually have to work at positive criticism. That said, my own feedback structure is usually actually, you know, hey, this is great. Here I'm going to describe what I read or saw or whatever to you so that you know that I have some idea of what I'm talking about, that trust building thing that Marion's talking about. Then offer some very specific positive feedback. Then offer some very specific but not overwhelming amounts of (laughs) negative feedback. And then say, hey, do you want some concrete suggestions? And if the person says yes, give it to them. It is different when you are a boss or you are the person putting money behind the project. She's in a slightly different place than where I am. But, But that's how I tend to operate in giving people feedback. Oh, that sounds amazing. All right. My ears perked up when Marion said that the hardest thing to do is to stop developing an idea that you love because, oh my God, yes, we've all, I think, had that experience where you just get so into a project. The research is fun and stimulating and you find things that are surprising and the idea seems like something that people will really respond to. But then sometimes it just doesn't work out for whatever reason, whether it's a good one or a bad one. And it's devastating. But you do sometimes have to pull the plug. What advice would you give to listeners who sense that they might have to do that awful thing? How do you know when it's time? I don't know exactly how you know when it's time. I think you just kind of do. But I've also had to have to just say that doing this sucks. It's Mm. it never feels good, right? It's Mm. never like, oh great, I'm gonna light the last year of my life on fire. (laughs) I mean the 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 sunk cost fallacy is just as, if not more, real when it comes to your time with creative work. And um so this is what I would say though. If it's a piece that does not 
really involve collaborators yet. You know, you're just working on a script or a book or a painting or whatever. Then I think what you got to do is not conceptualize it as letting go of the piece forever, right? You're just shelving it for now. Now, for now Mm. could be the rest of your life. For now could be (laughs) until the heat death of the universe. For now could be actually it turns out two months and then you read something and you're like, oh, that's the key. And then you go back to it, you know, Mm. like just don't tell yourself it's forever because it's not. It's all up to you and you can change your mind. Gets much Mm. harder once collaborators are involved. I think if you have a good working relationship with your collaborators and if you want to preserve that working relationship for the future, You have to be really careful and probably not pull the plug unilaterally, or at least not as Mm. the first move. Then it's about involving them in that decision. Have a very difficult, very honest conversation. It could be that you just have to give them the permission to go forward with the project without you, as painful as that's going to be. It could be actually all of you have been waiting to say to the other person, it doesn't (laughs) work, but we're worried about hurting each other's feelings. You know, you just have to try to have that conversation. It's a process. Oh, wow. I was really interested to hear how Marion takes care of herself when she's in the middle of a long and stressful project, because mm. no matter how busy you are, you have to find something that feels like a reward or recharges your energy. Isaac, what do you do in those circumstances? Oh, man. Uh, because of an experience I had in my 20s, I really try to eat right and get enough sleep, which can Mm. be really, really hard. Uh, That experience was, you know, I was in tech rehearsals. I was in 10 out of 12s, which are 12 hour rehearsals with two one hour dinner breaks or meal breaks, uh, uh, which is a thing you do for the week that you're putting in the tech of the show. And I was in 10 out of 12s. And, you know, often we just think, oh, well, everything sucks. I'm going to eat garbage. I'm going to have a bacon, (laughs) egg and cheese for breakfast. I'm just going to run to the bodega and get whatever's easiest to get for lunch, Mm. you know, Mm. et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And truthfully, it got in the way of my ability to do my job because I felt yep. so sluggish. And then the yep. next day I was yep. like, nope, I'm going to have like a salad and then yeah. some, you know, like very simply Protein. prepared noodles yes. and edamame and some yeah, poached yeah, yeah. chicken or whatever. And it actually really turned my ability to think and emotionally tolerate what was going on around. So yeah. I yeah. nowadays, you know, I'm, I'm doing Pilates a lot. So I try mm. to keep up with that. I'm not a big rewards at the end of the process person, even though actually my wife is. So like she plans vacations really far in advance. You know, she looks at when's our kids breaks and where are we going to go and let's figure it all out. Yeah. And it helps her because when work is going really badly, she can just go, Oh yeah, but in March we're going to Paris. So you know whatever <laughs> right, it is. Right, right, right. Um, maybe I don't do it that much because she actually is taking care of that work already. Maybe she's already doing that emotional labor for both of us. But yeah. it is important to have little things like you know I'm going to throw myself a party or yeah. I'm going to you know I have a friend who's <laughs> yeah. like when I'm done composing this piece I'm going to get this big video game and spend a week not doing anything oh other than yeah. that or you know whatever it is. Yeah, for me it's I'm going to buy that pen that I really want. I knew it. I knew <laughs> yeah. it. Was a pen. I knew it. No, Isaac, I really have no particular reason to ask you this. Honestly, no, just Mm -hmm. just wondering. But do you have any tips for that period when you've done the bulk of the work on one project, but you're not quite in the thick of the next one? Mm. What was the best thing that you found to do in that sort of interval between projects? Uh, so this is just off the top of the dome. Just, huh? There's, yeah, just, there's yeah. just no off reason. It certainly has nothing to do with your recently completed mm-hmm. book about the history of <laughs> lesbian culture and politics through the stories of several you know, important spaces in lesbian history. Absolutely not. But thank you. That for, doesn't have anything uh, yes. to do with that. 
Yeah, that's no. coming out in June of next year. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to double check. Anyway, yeah. so uh, my first big tip is to go look up the working overtime episode about what to do between big projects. I believe Karen oh. and I recorded it. It's full of lots of tips. <laughs> I will also say, though, my second big piece of advice is to just take care of yourself. Uh, your brain is two things are going to be simultaneously going on with your mind. One is you're burnt out and spent. And so you're actually not operating at full capacity. But the other thing is your mind is really used to being really occupied and driven and achieving a lot. And it's hungry for that. <laughs> and so those two things are going to war with each other and make yourself miserable, right? That That's what's going to probably happen. What yeah. I say is focus on recharging. Be as fully invested in your personal life, which you've probably been neglecting. You know, go out for dinner with your partner or see friends, go to, you know, theater, whatever. And then the other part is to try to recharge culturally. Read Mm. a lot. Go to see Mm. movies. Listen to music. Go to art stuff you don't normally do. Take long walks and look at architecture. What you're really trying to do is kind of fill the tank back up because when it comes time for the next thing, you know, you're going to start depleting that tank again. Be very wary of rushing into the next big thing just because it fills you with anxiety to not have Mm. a big project that's consuming your whole life. Yeah. Whoa, so much sage advice this week. Thank you, Isaac. Yes, I am stroking my my long rabbinical beard uh, (laughs) uh, as we speak. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you will never miss an episode. Just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like ours, extra episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you will never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Mary McGowan for the great conversation today and to our producer, Cameron Drews, known to every host he works with as The Great. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with Brad Dowdy, known in certain quarters of the internet as The Pen Addict. Until then, get back to work. <laughs>